All right, Matthew chapter 24, the title of this sermon is Tribulation, Abomination, and the Comfort of the Coming of Christ. This is a doozy. So we'll be looking at Matthew 24, verses 1 through 31 today. But we're not going to read it all at the same time because it's a lot. We're going to take it like chunk by chunk. And to get some context for uh, this passage, we're going to back up three verses into the last chapter. So we're going to start reading in Matthew chapter 23, verse 37. Jesus speaking says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, you spoke these words for a reason. 2,000 years ago to your followers. And now we read them, Lord, and they have been preserved for us through all this time. And we want to get everything that you intended for us to get. You had an intention then, a reason. We ask that you would um, accomplish that now here in our lives and that this morning we would Get everything that you have for us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So we saw in the last chapter, if you were here last week, Billy taught it last week. um, Jesus, and we just read it here, Jesus is pronouncing this judgment on Jerusalem. And he's lamenting over the fact that he wanted to bring in Israel like a mother hen gathers her chicks into his arms. He wanted people to trust in him, and yet they were unwilling Instead of coming into his arms, what we see happening in the last chapters we have seen throughout the book of Matthew is these people rejecting Jesus and his work. And then Jesus pronounces this judgment on their house at the end of chapter 23 and the beginning of 24 where he says that their house, their temple, would be left desolate and there would not be one stone that would not be thrown down. This was an explicit prophecy about what would happen about 37 years later when after being fed up with Rome and the Roman rule, the Jews would just have enough and the Jews in Jerusalem would revolt against Rome and there would be an all-out war that culminated in AD 70 when Rome would come in, conquer the city of Jerusalem, the temple would be destroyed and the Jews would be scattered just like Jesus had prophesied. So Jesus pronounces that judgment on Jerusalem. And then he begins to walk away from the temple. And the disciples, who are maybe a little tripped out, because this is kind of like heavy stuff. This is their temple. You know what I mean? They come to him and they say, but Jesus, look at And they're like pointing back. They're like, look at the buildings of this temple. Look at this place. We know from Mark 13 that what they were really saying is, 
Lord, look how magnificent this thing is, though. Like, look how grand and beautiful and big this temple is. And it was. It was huge. It was 500 yards wide and 400 yards deep. And it was built with these massive pure white stones, many of them plated with gold that historians said when the sun would shine on it, it was so bright that it was blinding. You couldn't even look at the temple. It was grand and magnificent and beautiful. And Jesus points back to this magnificent structure and pronounces this judgment on it. So now Jesus is sitting with his disciples on the Mount of Olives, which overlooks the temple. If you've ever been to Jerusalem, you know the Mount of Olives sits up and it looks down over the temple mount where the temple is. Jesus is looking over down over the temple he was just talking about. And the disciples, who are probably a little startled by his words, come to him and they ask him three questions. They ask him, number one, when will this happen, Jesus, the destruction of the temple? Number two, what will be the sign of your coming? Referring to when Jesus said at the end of the last chapter that you will see me again, right? Implying that he's coming back again, obviously referencing his second coming. And then thirdly, what will be the sign of the end of the age? Speaking of the period just before Jesus returns. Now, as we look back, we, we can tell that what the disciples had in mind was what they thought would be not three separate events, but like one big intertwined kind of thing that had all of these three questions uh, that would be referenced here. But as we look back in history, we see this wasn't one big intertwined web of events. This is three distinct different things that would happen over the span of a couple of thousand years from the ascension of Jesus till the return of Christ whenever that might be. And Jesus does address their three questions, and he does it pretty explicitly, but he doesn't really reveal much about timing. So I want to say this. If you are reading this passage today and you're like, okay, Dom's going to give us a prediction of like when this might be, month and day, when Jesus is going to return. I'm not going to do that because Jesus didn't do that. To lay out a timeline for when he would return was obviously not his intention here. In fact, as we'll see next week, Jesus says quite the opposite when he says at the end of this chapter— But of that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. And therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day our Lord is coming. And for this reason, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. So it's pretty clear that Jesus' goal here isn't to answer uh, a question about the chronology or to answer, to give us the chronology of when these things will happen. And so when we read it, we should not try to figure that out. What the Bible says about when Jesus returns or when Jesus will return is that it will be soon. That's it. That's all the Bible gives us. And the Bible gave us that 2,000 years ago. So all I can say about it now is that it's sooner. Right? <laughs> So if answering the question of when is not Jesus' goal, then what are his goals? Well, his first goal, we see this from this passage, is that he really does want to warn his followers of the difficult days ahead. Second goal is that he wants to comfort his followers with the knowledge of his sovereignty, his mission, and his return. And thirdly, he wants to urge his followers to live responsibly, faithfully, compassionately, and courageously in the age to come. Both in the age that they were living in and the age that we are living in and that is to come. Now we're going to explore the third goal next week. But today we're going to focus 
primarily on these first two goals, Jesus forewarning his followers and Jesus comforting his followers. And we're going to start by looking at some of the warnings in verses 4 through 8, as we'll see some of the signs of what these times might look like leading up to the return of Jesus. So, continuing on, Jesus said to them in verse 4, See to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place. But that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pains. So Jesus gives us some general signs here of what the world is going to look like at the beginning of the end of the age. He says this isn't the end, but this is the beginning of the end. And what, if you can break it all down, what Jesus is describing here is a world that is full of chaos. He says there will be people who are being deceived and misled. He says that there will be nations who are fighting against each other. He says that there will be wars that are really happening, and that there will be other wars that maybe aren't happening, but people are saying they might. He says that there will be famines, and there will be natural disasters all over the place. Jesus is describing a world full of chaos. What it sounds like he's describing, though, is my Twitter feed, right, and our nightly news. But what's crazy is that these same sorts of things have been the headlines of news since after the ascension of Jesus, you could look back at almost any time in history and say, oh man, oh okay, yeah, surely this is the time that Jesus was speaking of. Surely these are the birth pains that he was talking about. And I suppose that that was by the design of God, maybe to remind us, man, it really is soon. And the next generation, yeah, it must be even, it's sooner, right? So that we... uh, would be about his business. After all, when, when he returns, man, I, I, I want to be about, not like distracted with the things of the world that are temporal, but about kingdom things that are eternal. Anybody with me? So maybe this is the way that God designed it to be because it sure does seem that if we look back to every generation, we could have said, yeah, okay, this has got to be what Jesus was talking about in Matthew chapter 24. So, Jesus warns his followers of what the world would be like as he describes a world that is full of chaos. And then he goes on to warn them further of what is to come in verses 9 through 13 as he says, Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. What Jesus is describing here is he is describing the church under attack. He says that Christians will be murdered for their faith. He says that Christians will be hated for their faith. Christians will fall away from the faith and hate one another. Christians will be led astray by false prophets and that people's love will grow cold. People will stop loving one another. This is the description of Christ's church under attack. He is describing the church in the midst of a corrupted and 
rebellious world whose corruption, rebelliousness, and lawlessness has seeped into the church and is affecting the church from within, right? He says there's people from within will be hating each other from within. And then also a church that is living in a world that is affected by that same rebellion and lawlessness and is being affected from without. He is describing the church under attack from within and from without. So in the first paragraph... Verses 4 through 8, he's describing a world that is full of chaos as a result of people's rebellion and lawlessness. And in the second paragraph that we just read, verses 9 through 13, he is describing his church under attack also as a result of the world's rebellion and lawlessness. And we see these things happening immediately after Jesus says them. But we also see them historically as we look at the last couple of thousand years. And we see them presently as we look right now. We see a world full of chaos and the church under attack immediately. As you look at the book of Acts, man, you see people being killed for their faith. You see even divisions immediately in the church. You see people coming against one another. Some people leaving the faith. You see that times were tumultuous. And then you see it historically. As you look at the last couple thousand years, like I said, you could almost look at any generation and see all of these things that Jesus describes here. And then we see it presently, and we know this. I don't have to tell you what the world is like right now. There's almost not space in the news for all of the tragedy going on. Just when, like, you're, like, just, like, understanding one tragedy, another one hits, right? Just, just, just at the time you're starting to, like, comprehend the gravity of one natural disaster, another one comes and takes the driver's seat. And don't be deceived about how the church is persecuted right now, guys. Like, we live in America. We kind of live in a bubble. We can kind of be naive about it and kind of get numb to it. But our brothers and sisters are being killed for their faith in many parts of the world. 100,000 of them last year. One million of them in the last decade. Did you know that in the last century there have been more Christians martyred for their faith than in all the previous centuries combined? So these things are indeed happening presently. And Jesus said these would be the beginning of birth pains. How long would the birth pains last? Nobody knows. Just like you go into labor, you don't know how long it's going to last. Some women are only in for an hour. Some are in for days. Right? You don't know how long it's going to last. Nobody knows. But remember, that's not his point. His point is to warn us. And his point is to comfort us, which we'll speak of more in just a second. And Jesus says in verse 6 that these things must take place. Jesus is describing a world full of chaos as a result of its rebellion against God. These things must take place means that these are things that will happen as a result of a world rebelling against God and his plan for humanity. If people are going to live in sin, then these things will come. This is not, hear this, listen to this. It's important to know, this is not God's judgment that he's speaking of in verses 4 through 13. That, his judgment is going to come in a little bit. We're going to see that. This is a result, these are the effects of a world that chooses to live in rebellion against God. And if the world is going to live this way, then these things must come. But he says in verse 6 something that is key that we need to hear. He says, but do not be frightened. But do not be frightened. In spite of all of this, do not be afraid. When these things happen, and they will, I want you to remember that I said them beforehand. That I knew they were going to happen. And if I knew, then that means that I am in control. And if I am in control, then you have nothing to be afraid of. Even in the chaos I am in control, Jesus is saying. 
Moving on here, we're going to skip verse 14 just for the moment. We'll come back to it in a minute and move on to verse 15. But before we do that, just a little recap, right? So here's what we just, here's what we just read, just study. Verses 4 through 8, Jesus breaks down how the world will be affected as a result of her sin and rebellion. And then in verses 9 through 13, he breaks down how the church will be affected as a result of the world's sin and rebellion. And his encouragement to his followers in that section is to stand firm. He says, endure. Stand strong. Endure until the end. When the effects of sin and rebellion come and the world gets crazy, the church is persecuted, he says, stand firm. Don't run away. Stay where you are. We're going to make it. Endure. This is the world you live in. You are not of it, but you are in it. I have placed you in it. And so you're going to have to endure the results of living in it. But stand strong. And that is his directive in verses 4 through 13. But in the verses we're about to read, this is... 15 through 20, his directive is going to change a bit. Because in verses 15 through 20, Jesus is no longer talking about the results of living in a sinful, fallen, lawless world. He's talking about God's judgment. He's going to move on to, to give us more warnings in these coming verses, 15 through 20. But this time the warnings are related to his judgment coming to earth. And this is different than the previous verses. And as we'll see, his directive then is going to be different for his followers. When the hard times Jesus spoke of were a result of a fallen, rebellious world, the directive was endure. But when it comes to God's judgment, it is always God's plan to deliver his people from judgment and for them to not endure it. Listen to me. God's wrath is not ever intended for his children but for those who reject him. It is always God's plan to deliver his people from wrath. That's what the cross was. God had wrath stored up for our sin, and he poured it out on Jesus, and Jesus willingly took all the judgment and wrath of God so that we who believe in him could sit under his grace and his love and his mercy and not endure any of that punishment. That's what the cross was. Is it always God's plan to deliver those who are under the blood from his wrath. We see this principle all the way back before Jesus in the book of Exodus when Pharaoh refused to let the children of Israel go and God brought death to every home in Egypt except the homes that were covered with the blood of the lamb. Those who were covered with the blood of the lamb shall never experience the wrath of God. And so he doesn't tell his followers this time to stand firm and endure but rather, he's going to warn them what is to come, and then he's going to tell them that when this comes, you should flee. So let's see this in verses 15 through 20, and this is where Jesus is also going to answer the question, uh, when will the destruction of the temple be? Verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, whoever is on the housetop, must not go down to get the things out that are in his house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant, he's he's lamenting here, and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. Jesus says that there's going to be something that will be called the abomination of desolation, which was written of by the prophet Daniel, Daniel chapter 9, Daniel chapter 12. And in order to understand uh, passages like this that have to do with Bible prophecy, we need to understand some things about Bible 
prophecy. Specifically, the thing we need to understand here to help us understand what's being said is we need to understand that in Bible prophecy, we have what we would call near fulfillments and far fulfillments. We have in Bible prophecy what we would refer to as partial fulfillments and complete fulfillments. And we see this all throughout Bible prophecy, and that's why sometimes it can get kind of confusing. So when Daniel spoke of what he called the abomination of desolation, he may have been prophesying partially about what would happen a hundred years before Christ when the Greek ruler Antiochus Epiphanes came in and desecrated the temple. Daniel may have had that in mind. It was an abomination of desolation. But we also believe that he had the ultimate abomination of desolation in mind, speaking of the Antichrist who would come, will come toward the end that the New Testament speaks of. Partial fulfillment from Antiochus Epiphanes, complete fulfillment someday with the Antichrist. And we see the same thing here with Jesus. He's talking about the destruction of the temple. And so it seems that Jesus probably had in mind what would happen in AD 70 with the destruction of the temple that I mentioned earlier when the Roman general Titus would come in and desecrate the temple. And that's when it would be destroyed. Another abomination of desolation. So, Jesus said, this is the judgment I was speaking of. Right? And when you see this, I want you to flee. You're my followers. I'm not going to judge you. When you see this, flee Jerusalem. When you see the effects of sin in the world, stand strong. You can endure. We're going to make it through. But here, he tells his followers, when you see this specifically, I want you to flee. And historically, we know that's exactly what happened. When everything started heating up a little bit before AD 70, and the Jews started revolting, and there, you, there was this war that was happening, the Christians were like, hey, this, Jesus, he said this. And they bolted. They got out of the city, and they weren't even there when it all came to a boiling point in A.D. 70 with the destruction of the temple and this uh, abomination of desolation with the, the, the Roman um, ruler, or the Roman general Titus. But we also believe that Jesus is talking about more than just A.D. 70 here, as we'll see in these next few verses. And this is, again, an example of near fulfillment, far fulfillment, partial fulfillment of Bible prophecy, and complete fulfillment. Because the words that Jesus uses in these next verses are far too grand to have to, to be just about what happened around that five-year period in eight, around AD 70. Moving on, verse 21, he goes on to say, For then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will be. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, behold, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. So I think Jesus definitely had in mind referencing the, the tribulation of AD 70 that would come, right? For sure he is addressing his followers' question about the temple and when it would be destroyed. And that definitely was a tribulation, for sure. But he also is referencing something greater. He says it will be a great tribulation. And he says that it will be a time, in verse 21, such as has not ever occurred since the beginning of the world and will never be again. 
He's speaking of something bigger. So near fulfillment, tribulation of AD 70. Far fulfillment, the great future tribulation. Partial fulfillment, the tribulation of AD 70, that war. Complete fulfillment, the future great tribulation. So this is some gnarly stuff, right? This is like heavy stuff. So what do we do with this? Well, listen, we know what we don't do. Because Jesus told us, remember back in verse 6, he says, You do not be frightened. That's what you don't do. When these things happen, and they will, Jesus said, I want you to remember that I said them. And I want you to know that I knew beforehand. And I want you to know that I even told you about them beforehand. So then you can trust that even in the midst of the chaos, Jesus is saying, I am in control. And if I am in control, you do not need to be afraid. Jesus wants to remind his followers that he is still the one who sleeps in the boat when the raging sea is all crazy and chaotic and everybody's freaked out about it. He's still the one that wakes up and speaks to the storm that everybody's scared about and that's making everybody anxious. And he, he says with the word shalom, peace, be still. And he quiets that very thing that brings so much chaos to his people. And he says to us, like he said to his Followers in John 16, I have said these things that in me you may have peace. He says in me that you may have peace. I'm not talking about giving you peace that the world gives because the world can't give you peace. What the world can give you is what he describes. Wars, rumors of wars, famines, natural disasters, fires, mudslides, anxiety. That's, That's what the world gives you. I don't give you peace like the world. The world can't give you peace. I have said these things to you. I've told you beforehand that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. These warnings that Jesus gave us are not meant to startle us and terrify us. They are meant to warn us and settle us. Nor are these warnings from Jesus meant to be used as like a scare tactic to try to like say to our Christian brothers and sisters to get them to obey God better out of fear of the second coming or something like this. Jesus didn't say these things and give these warnings to bring fear, but rather to bring peace and comfort. He wanted to remind us that he was in control and he's saying, and as I am in control, I am with you. As I will always be Till the end of the age. Like God said through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 43 too, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When the crazy storms come, I'll be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. When the effects of the world affect your world, remember that Jesus is with you and in control. And this reality should bring us great comfort. Guys, right? Like this should bring us a lot of comfort. Jesus intends to comfort us with him knowing. But he also intends to comfort us with something else. He also intends to comfort us with his victorious mission that is spoken of here. His victorious mission both to us and through us. Jesus wants to comfort his followers with the reality of his victorious mission to us and through us. We saw in verse 13 that we are the fruit of this victorious mission 
right? That it has come to us, salvation has come to us, and that as we endure, he will bring the fullness of our salvation to completion in the end. That is his victorious mission to us. But now let's see that he also has a plan for working this victorious mission through us. As we go back to that verse, we skipped verse 14. So right after these gnarly times, right, Jesus is speaking on verses 9 through 12. He's talking about persecution and martyrdom, false prophets and people falling away. Then he says in verse 13, but he who endures will be saved. And then in verse 14, and this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Jesus is seeking to comfort his followers with his victorious mission, not only to us, but through us. He says, listen, times are going to get crazy. It's going to be chaotic. It's going to be heavy. Christianity is going to be under attack. It's going to feel like the truth is losing. But my word is like a fire. Like the prophet Jeremiah said, my word is like a rock and a hammer. And my truth will prevail. In fact, the gospel, he says, will be preached to every nation, literally in the Greek, every ethnic group. And how will this happen? Through us. Through us. Guys, we have been given the task and the privilege of delivering this good news to all the nations. It is very clear from Scripture that we have been given the task and the privilege of this. After all, how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Guys, how are the preachers going to go unless they are sent? Well, Jesus has sent us. He has sent us. He says at the end of all the Gospels, go. Go into all the world and preach the Gospel to all creation. When Jesus said that the Gospel was going to go forth to all the nations, he had in mind us doing that. That happening through us. That is how the gospel goes forth. He wasn't saying, hey guys, just sit back, endure, just chill, hold fast. And that preaching thing, we're going to get the, like, the, the, the special guys to do that. You are the special guys. You are the special guys. You are the holy priesthood. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Listen, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. This is how it goes forward. This is how the good news goes forward. And that is why we as a church give such special attention within our global mission vision to reaching the unreached. This is why we focused our global mission efforts primarily on reaching people groups who have not yet heard the good news of Jesus. Because this, Jesus said, would be the thing that once it happens, then the end would come. All the other stuff, just the beginning of birth pains. All the other stuff, just the beginning of the end. But here, this is the first time that Jesus gives us anything close to a chronological cue. And he says, when the gospel is preached to every nation, then... The end will come. And we want to be a part of that. We want to be a part of that. And that's why we give so much attention in our global mission efforts to reaching the unreached. We want to join in with Christ and him ushering in his kingdom. We share the sentiment of Paul in Romans 15 when he says, My ambition has always been to preach the good news where the name of Christ has never been heard. Rather than where a church has already been started by someone else. 
Now, that's not to say that our preaching ushers in the kingdom. We don't usher in the kingdom. Jesus is the one who ushers in his kingdom. But throughout history and certainly now, God chooses to not work independent of his people, but through his people to accomplish his purpose. God wants to involve us in his work of bringing the good news of Jesus to every tribe, tongue, and nation. And so we ought to join in with him in that. And that means then that our focus is not to be on the tumultuous times, although they may be crazy, but rather on the victorious mission of Christ to us and through us. So we hold fast and endure. Yes, but we don't just hold fast. We don't just sit back and like hold on in the midst of a rebellious, lawless world, but rather we confront the rebellion of the world with the good news of Jesus. We confront the brokenness of the world with the good news of Jesus that mends the brokenness. We confront, like I said, the rebellion of the world by taking the truth of the gospel to the nations. And here's what's cool, guys. God is already doing this. Whether we're choosing to join in with it or not, God is already doing it. In America, I know it seems like Christianity is on the decline, but we live in this bubble. In the rest of the world, man, people are hearing the mind-boggling, life-transforming truth about Jesus and are deciding to follow him. It's happening all over the world. Do you know that there have been more people who decided to follow Jesus in the last century than in all the previous centuries combined. I know it feels like the truth is losing because also, like I said before, there have been more Christians killed for their faith in the last century than in all the centuries combined. But the truth is winning. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Right? But his truth will prevail. Listen, Jesus and his church and Christianity are not losing. Jesus doesn't lose. His truth is prevailing. The truth is expanding. The question is, are we being a part of that expansion? But all of this is just the beginning of birth pains. The chaos of the world, birth pains. Terrible persecution in the church, to the church, birth pains. Even the preaching of the gospel to every nation, just stronger birth pains. But the main event is the glorious return of Jesus. And that is where this whole thing culminates, at Jesus. So moving on here, Jesus wants to make it very clear what that is going to look like, what his second coming is going to look like. He doesn't want to leave any ambiguity. Like, so somebody's like, I don't know, is that Jesus? Like, is he out there? And then there's this little group out there that said Messiah came. Or like, that person had the stigmata. Are they Jesus? Or like the Rastas believe, oh, Haile Selassie, I saw the stigmata. He's the emperor of Ethiopia. He's got to be Jesus in his second coming. He's going to make it very, 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 very clear and tell us exactly what it is going to look like. He continues on in verse 26. So if they say to you, behold, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. Or behold, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe them. For just as lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of man be. Wherever there is a corpse, there, are vult- there vultures will gather. In other words, nobody sees lightning and is like, dude, did somebody turn on a flashlight? Right? You're like, lightning, yeah. Like the whole sky just lit up. I know it's lightning. Nobody sees like a hundred vultures circling in the sky and is like, I wonder if there's something dead down there. Right? Like vultures circle where there's a corpse. 
And Jesus says where there's lightning, there's lightning. Where there's vultures, there's something dead. And all these things that Jesus is talking about, he says when these things happen, then you'll know I'm returning. He goes on, verse 29. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, here's the sign, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. And the stars, scary, will fall from heaven. And the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And let all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the, of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet. And they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. Paraphrase, guys, you're not going to miss it. It's going to be kind of a big deal. Right? Says the return of Jesus is going to be obvious and public. It's not going to be some hidden thing. He says that it's going to be visible and unmistakable. The moon and the sun are going to give no more light. He said that it will be earth shattering and sky shaking. He says that it's going to involve judgment. The people will mourn in verse 30. And salvation. All the believers will be gathered to him in verse 30, 31. And he says the return of Jesus will be Glorious, and the whole world will see it as he comes on the clouds. So yes, in the midst of tribulation and abomination, find comfort that Christ knows and sees and is with us and will preserve us to the end. And yes, find comfort in his victorious mission coming to us and working through us. But the greatest comfort that we have is found in the soon return of Jesus. And it's comfort because what happens when he comes. When he comes, he's going to make everything right. He's going to make all the crooked things straight. When Christ returns, it will be a time when creation will be renewed. When Christ returns, it will be a time when death finally, permanently will be defeated. When Christ returns, it will be a time when the devil will be done with. He will be vanquished. When Christ returns, it's going to be a time when humanity will be rightly and righteously judged. It will be a time when God's loving mission of saving people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will finally be fully realized. And it will be a time when our dwelling will be in glory and eternal peace. And Jesus will be at the center of it all. Chad read it this morning, but I want to read it again because it's so stinking good And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw the lamb standing as though it had been slain. And the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen. Jesus is the center of it all. This chapter reminds us that Jesus is the pinnacle and goal of all of history. 
that he rules and reigns over every age, over every human affair, and that he is building his church, and that his good news is going forth, and that his truth and his church and his mission will prevail, and that ultimately he's going to win. We're going to leave us with this. Paul wrote to Titus, and he says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled. Guys, times are going to get crazy, but in the midst of this, live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Guys, Jesus is coming back. But until then, the world is going to get crazier and crazier. In the midst of that, we would do good to follow the words of Paul here and to take some cues from Jesus. I want to give us three R's to take home. I'm not going to say anything about it. I'm just going to say them. We would do good to renounce, like he writes here, ungodliness and worldly passions. We would do good to recenter our lives around Jesus and his mission. And that we would recharge by the power of the Holy Spirit. Listen, we can't live faithful to Christ and endure until the end without the power of the Holy Spirit. Forty days after this, the disciples would be sitting there with Jesus, the risen Jesus, before he ascended. And they'd be like, Lord, is this the time that you were talking about 40 days ago? Is this the time now? And Jesus would say to them, it's, it's not for you to know the time. But there is something that I do want you to know. You're going to receive the Holy Spirit. You're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you are in need of the power of the Holy Spirit if you are going to live faithful to me and my mission until I return. Guys, we need the power of the Holy Spirit. So listen, um, I'm done. We're going to go into our second set here. And during the second set, as always, there's going to be people on the right and the left. We call them the prayer team. Now, I want to say something about the prayer team. Um, They are here to help us in any way. They are godly men and women who are here to pray for you. Now, sometimes it seems like to take the walk from the chair to the prayer team is like a walk of shame. This is not a walk of shame. Nobody's looking at you like, oh, man, he's going prayer team. He must have done something real wrong. Like, nobody's thinking that. These are brothers and sisters who just want to pray for you. We're all agreeing that we're not looking at each other, judging you, each other being like, oh, dude's getting prayer. It must be gnarly. Like, we ought to pray for one another. That's why they are here. So come and use them. They're sitting here. They're ready to be pray- they're praying for you. Come and ask them in any way, anything going on in your life, they would love to pray for you. This is not some weird big thing. Like just go get prayer. And the carpets are here, guys, because we believe that as we change our physical posture, that often our hearts follow that posture. Right? You've seen this. You know this. As you lift your hands, it's like, oh, your heart kind of has, like you step out of your bubble in like a physical way to get free. Your heart starts to get free in that same way. The Bible in the Old Testament uses the word shakha 
Almost every time it talks about worship. It's this Hebrew word, shakha. And it means literally to prostrate oneself on the ground in homage before a king or a deity. The concrete's really hard. That's why there's carpets here. So you can come and take a posture of humility and worship before God. And the communion is here for us to remember, like Jesus said, we should his body that was broken, and his blood that was spilled. Remember that the work was completed on the cross. You have nothing left that you need to try to do to be accepted by God. You put your trust in Jesus who did all the work. That's why the communion is here. Just a little housekeeping thing. The way this thing works, you take the cracker, you dip it in the juice. You eat it. You don't drink the juice from the cup. And try not to get your fingers in there because that's gross. Okay, we good? All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you for these words that you spoke. There is so much comfort to be found in them. And there's a challenge also to be found in them. We are encouraged this morning to recenter our lives around Jesus and his mission. We want to recenter our lives around Jesus and his mission. Father, we thank you for your great love for us. We thank you that you want to involve us in all that you're doing. We do pray now for the power of the Holy Spirit. I ask that you would pour out your spirit like you said you would in the last days, that you would pour out your spirit on all flesh, that even in this room that men and women would begin to have dreams of you and your kingdom. People would begin to see visions and begin to hear from you. People even in this room right now would begin to experience the nearness of God like they never had, have. Lord, we turn towards you now. We turn towards you. We center our lives around you. We renounce the things of the world. We say no. And we turn towards you. In Jesus' name, amen.